Great. Sensational. Terrific. What is it? I told you. Cyberology. Are you with me? Not exactly with you, but somewhere nearby. Oh. This is Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. My name is Michael, and I am lucky enough to be pretty unattractive to predators online. Because that's lucky and not normal, as it probably should be, we need systems and professionals that are sensitive to and effective against the harms caused by cyber predators. Our guest today is working to make that happen, and to that end has recently published the book Cyber Predators and Their Prey. Dr. Lauren Shapiro is an associate professor at the Department of Security, Fire and Emergency Management at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. And she joins us to talk about the process of creating this kind of book and issues surrounding interpersonal crime online. We will also be joined by Scott Wright, who is here to answer another of my silly questions, this time about the experience of starting a cybersecurity business, so don't miss that. First, though, I'm always very interested in how interdisciplinary research is created, as the perspectives of, say, a wizened internet and a psychologist or maybe a lawyer seem to be at odds with each other quite a lot of the time. So you might understand my curiosity as to how one person might become all of these things. I started in psychology for my undergrad, but I also had previously been in computer science, decided that I wanted to do more with helping people. And that brought me from computer science to psychology, and then I expanded it to early childhood education. From there, I went to graduate school, and I was working still in psychology and specialized in psychology for cognitive development and was working with children. So it kind of already combined the early childhood education and psychology for my undergrad. And then I had done a postdoc looking at interviewing of children, particularly related to child abuse, to better understand that. It was novel at the time because most of the memory research was based on how can we improve education And this was the first time it was being used more in terms of eyewitness testimony in court. From there, I decided that I wanted to do more on the criminal justice side. So I went back and I got a degree in criminal justice. At that time, I was working in the police department as an intern, trying to learn all aspects of police work evidence room, interviewing, any of the specific major crimes, going out on the beat, riding in a car. (laughs) And then I went and was able to get an externship with a federal court judge, which was really different. Mainly they had law students doing that. But since I already had my PhD, I had been out for a while, I was able to convince the judge that it would be an easy externship for him. And I really liked how I was able to sit in the courtroom as an observer, but then also go into the back in the court chambers to hear how the judge was thinking about the way the case was progressing and having his clerks working on a particular topic. He even allowed me to work on some of the gathering of evidence and looking up cases and making reports. So that was a great experience for me. In that way, I was able to see not only day-to-day how people deal with criminal justice from the police department and in the courtroom, that whole gamut, but also I already had an understanding of 
the psychological perspective of what do people know? What do they remember? What influences what they say about what they remember? So how questions can influence people's responses. And then I had branched into security and was looking at juvenile delinquents and understanding that aspect. But I also was interested in cybercrime, so looking at how particularly children wound up doing crimes using the internet or how they had been victimized through social media. So children have been sort of a constant thread through, through all of this? They have been. Like, what is it that you brought from psychology that stayed with you all of the way through criminal justice and then into into what you're doing now? I would say that the understanding of how people think and how that influences their actions provided a framework for understanding whether it's security or criminal justice frames. You've produced this book on, on cyber predators. It's a very interesting book, and we'll get into the contents of the book a, a little bit later. But first, what's behind the choice to produce a book? So I teach a class called Cyber Predators, and I had asked my students to look at various articles for each of the different types of cyber predators, and they were struggling with getting a holistic perspective because not all the information was there. So I saw a niche. We do not provide information about all aspects of the cyber predator. For example, who is a typical cyber predator? What are their motives? What are their methods? We do need to understand that. And it was too difficult for them to apply what they were learning from these articles to discussions of cyber predators. And so I wanted to provide that aspect for them. I also had an expectation that they would be able to understand who the potential victims were and what laws were applicable to the crime and what types of cybersecurity could be utilized in order to minimize targeting and victimization. There wasn't any consistency, as I said, in the literature for all those elements. So putting it in the book would give them a better way to understand the material so that they can then have a discussion that was meaningful. I did the same thing for my child maltreatment book. I had a course to child protection service workers, and I realized that they did not understand enough about child development to get a sense of when they were questioning children or even offenders what is the typical situation and what would be atypical? Because it's really hard to figure out when someone says, my mommy touched me over here and they might show their private parts. Is that okay or not okay? What is the typical range for how children talk about sexual anatomy or interactions with others? There seems to be this question in a lot of the child protection workers' minds that if they're talking about it, then they've been exposed more likely in a physical way rather than an observation way. And I wanted to be able to create a book that would first and foremost give the normative development of children, so babies through adolescence, and then look at what are some of the abnormal slash abuse, maltreatment, neglect, 
And then in the third part, I focused on investigations, law, and other applications of criminal justice. That way, if anybody picked up the book, it would be useful in so many different fields and would give them a better, deeper understanding of what they would want to question a child about and how that could be dangerous if they're introducing very specific questions. So it also goes back to my work on eyewitness testimony. So the the, the idea is that to create a book that if you, you read it, even if you knew something about it, it would fill the gap so that you could kind of get a a level across all of the different pieces of knowledge you would need to to be effective working in in industries related to cyber predators or 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 children. Right. So you might be in the administration of child services, you might be the prosecutor, you might be a counselor who's working with these children. They would need all this type of information and if you can provide that breadth as well as the depth, then I think that you have a much better understanding of what the child experienced and what the child needs. And it also could advise judges what they would need to understand about the situation. These are very practically oriented then in terms of the the content. How does that change what you're writing compared to writing an academic journal? It's very different, but I always thought that it's important that if you're going to write something in an academic journal, which is great for people who are doing research and are teaching at a college, but if there's no practicality to it, if we can't let the common person understand the material, then it's too limited in being helpful. And I always want to be able to translate what we learn to some practical aspect of it. And in these books, you're writing differently because you have to explain things as though it's more of a conversation than it is in formal writing or a journal. Is that experience more, does it feel more free? Does it feel more natural? Is it in a way easier or is it more difficult than writing in the constrained style of a, of a scientific article? I think it depends on the book because in all of my books, the chapters are different. So it's like writing all these different articles, right? So I have 12 chapters. That's 12 different concepts. That's harder in a lot of ways than writing one article. As for the writing style, whether it's freeing me in terms of allowing how I say it, I guess that would be true. I use a lot of examples that I would not necessarily be able to do in a journal article. And by drawing on cases and examples, I think that it grounds the concept for the public more so than the freedom that you would have, which is very little in a journal article. So I say a book would be harder to write in the sense that there's more topics that you'd have to investigate. But I try to, for as many chapters as possible, also write a journal article so that that summary could be available on that level as well. How do you know when you're done? (laughs) I write an outline of what I propose to do, and that's what I try to stick to. I also made sure, especially for the Cyber Predators book, a format for every chapter. So every chapter on every cyber predator had the same types of information as much as possible. There were two exceptions because I didn't have a data set that I could use to understand the demographics, methods, and motives 
for swatters and underage sexters. So I created my own and then used that. This concept was also something that I've explained to my students before when they were telling me, we don't know what the demographics of this population is. Said then you need to make your own data set. I demonstrated in this book how they could do that. So I think even for a graduate student who would be trying to attempt to do that, this book gives them a really concrete way that they can learn about a particular cyber predator. It's interesting to me to see a book that is focused purely on cyber-enabled crimes. How did you pick out the particular types of cyber-enabled crime that you decided to include for the chapters? I decided to focus on the interpersonal cyber crimes. In that way, I, I really did leave out, for example, cyber-terrorism for a number of reasons, but mainly because it's harder to show how people might be targeted for extremist conversations that leads to terrorism. So I also teach another class in cyber vice and sugar babies is one of the topics. That's not really a crime per se to become a sugar baby, but some of the things that might happen to them could become criminal. The 10 I focus on are very clearly interpersonal cyber predators. They're looking for a person and they're trying to get something out of them, whether it's um, some type of abuse, could be sexual, financial. They're causing different types of harm. And I wanted to, again, be sure that I was consistent throughout the chapter for every chapter. Trying to think of how to group these together. Would you say that there's any similarities between them? So, like, you have a chapter on online swatters and a chapter on internet trolls. Are they similar or or not at all? You know how they're similar? There's no federal crime for those two cyber predators. And because of that, we have no understanding of the number of cases out there. We don't have a prevalence. Without the prevalence, we don't understand who the predators are, who their victims are, and it's difficult to help improve the situation or even give assistance to the victims. I do see some overlap in the methodology that the cyber predators use. You could probably group a lot of the specific cyber predators under harassment. So a troll is going to be doing harassment. A stalker is going to be doing harassment. A swatter is going to be doing harassment. So I see overlap in all of the crimes. The sexually related crimes, such as sexting, sextortion, there's sexual harm involved there. Swatting doesn't involve any kind of sexual harm, but it does have harassment and cyber extortion Sextortion, rather, has harassment as well. So I don't think it's clean the way that you're hoping that it could be categorized. But there are some common elements for each of these. Is there anything that you found through putting this book together that you hadn't realized previously that you found concerning? Well, I did do an investigation, and I'll use the swatting as a good example. Since 2009... There has not been any modification that would allow federal criminalization of swatting 
even though there have been multiple bills since that time. I'm not sure if part of the problem is that not enough of the Congress people are aware of how serious this is as a crime, because it's technically not a crime, if they are afraid of violating First Amendment rights or being attacked by specific groups like ACLU, or if it's just not something that most of the population consider to be of interest to them, and therefore they're spending more of their effort in trying to convince others like, oh, be on this bill with me. But the amount of harm that's committed online supersedes any amount that could be done in the physical world. So you could be sextorting hundreds of victims simultaneously. But if you were trying to do that in the real world, you'd only have a limited number of people that you could be doing that to. And I just think that's mind boggling. Most people would not understand. And if you look at some of the way that they've tried to use this puzzle piece method of prosecuting using existing laws, you'll see that I don't believe the punishment in terms of sentencing fits the crime. Giving someone 32 months in prison or sextorting hundreds of people, sharing and distributing their sexual images, causing other kinds of harm to them, forcing them to take a knife and cut themselves for 33, 32 months, that doesn't make sense to me. If, if somebody physically had taken someone and forced the same kinds of actions, we would have extended it to a much longer sentencing. So that's probably the one thing that just came to the forefront for me is we're not using the just desserts or deterrence theories to create punishment for some of the crimes. What do you think the reason behind that is? Well, what is it about the online aspect that seems to diminish that feeling of concern? I think there's a few things. The first thing I would say is the Communication Decency Act, Section 230, allowed the internet to grow unfettered. That was a big mistake. Because of that, we've had so many criminal acts go unpunished. And even for the internet service providers to claim that they are third party and therefore not responsible for the content on their sites gives them an excuse to continue doing so. There's no better incentive than to not punish people who are facilitators in the crime. If you look at sex trafficking, there has been a recent case, 2021, in which for the first time, a hotel has been um, criminally charged and they were successful in sentencing them because they were facilitating sexual trafficking. That hotel was, I want to say, a, a subsidiary of a major hotel. And that major hotel has always advertised that they are taking workshops and learning how to identify trafficking victims. But I think that if you're facilitating a crime, you should be held accountable unless you demonstrate that you've done your due diligence to not be a facilitator. The same thing should be done with the ISBs because their 
using a big excuse, it's not us, it's them, and they're getting away with it. If they said we did everything in our power and it's still happening and every time this was posted, we took it down or we made sure that we had someone go and check the content and we took it down if it was inappropriate, I think it would be a different story. Secondly, I think that the other aspect is that the majority of Americans are what I would call digital immigrants. They don't understand a lot about what's going on online. If you were born prior to 2001, let's say, you are an immigrant. You did not grow up with the internet. You probably didn't understand a lot about it. You weren't the first one to start texting on those little cell phones where the typewriter was <laughs> minuscule and you had to spend like, you know, all of your time with one finger putting in your message. Whereas those who were online since the beginning of Facebook or Instagram, those are the natives. The digital natives are able to operate different social media platforms and they're constantly active in the internet, but they had no guidance because the people who should have been guiding them, for example, parents and teachers who do it in the real world, weren't available to guide them. So they were just winging it. And that becomes a whole nother problem because they're being abused online and they don't even recognize it. In the book, I make this point that there are four qualities about the internet that facilitates the type of behaviors that are unacceptable in the real world. And most people would not do it because society holds them accountable, but that doesn't happen online. So the first one is toxic disinhibition. And that means when you're online and someone's nasty, that person doesn't seem to have any concern whatsoever that they're inflicting some type of harm on you. The second one is de-individuation, and that means that not only are the cyber predators, but also the bystanders who are in the same area as the victim seem to think that they don't have any individual responsibility towards making a good societal conversation. They have a cyber mob mentality. Not me, it's them. The third is the anonymity, and I think that that's been discussed multiple times, but you are one anonymous person. No one knows who you are, so if you say or do something, nobody knows how to identify you and then call you out on it. So there's no reproach whatsoever. And then the last is inculpability, and that means that neither the Predators or the bystanders are accepting responsibility for their specific roles in causing harm to these victims. And those four qualities allows people who may not normally be an offender to do so online. Do you have any research coming up that you want to mention? I'm working on a project in which college students are providing their own definition of cyber abuse, and I'm asking them to identify from a number of behaviors, which ones they believe on a Likert scale from one to seven, with one being not at all and seven being extremely abusive. So I can better understand what their own concept of acceptable and unacceptable behaviors are. In the past, researchers have given them definitions 
And I think that we may be missing the mark here. If the students can tell me, and these are college students, so 18 and I made it up to 26, what they believe is abusive, then we'll have a better understanding and we can guide them a little bit more. So if going online to a discussion board and being trolled on that is an acceptable behavior, there's nothing they can do about it because that's what happens online then we will better understand how we can explain to them that this is not acceptable behavior. And I give the example, if I was talking to a group of people and another person who happened to overhear me started saying nasty things to me, you and the group you're talking with would say, be quiet, you, go away. But they never think to do that online because they think that's what happens when you go online. Great. Thanks very much for your time, and I, and I look forward to the research in the near future. Thank you. Now, if you're involved in cyber, you're often expected to answer questions on everything from the difference between a CPU and an SOC to why RFC 2549 hasn't been updated to reflect the cloud. The best way to get ahead of those wild questions is to ask an expert, and we happen to have cornered an expert in cybersecurity training. Scott Wright has been a security professional for 20 years specializing in security awareness and compliance and is the founder of ClickArmor, but more importantly, has a good sense of humor and he's willing to answer my stupid questions, so we'll take advantage of that and we'll ask him this. So what's the thought process that happens when you sort of went from being a user of security products to being the creator of a security product? Yeah, it's a fun process. I mean, you don't really set out to say, I'm going to go build a product because it often has to come from some personal experience. And so for myself, it was, you know, over a decade ago, I was working in the area of risk management, doing risk assessments. And I would see a common pattern of assessments that said, you know, we solved all these technical problems with our solution and we've got all these safeguards or controls in place, but here are the ones that we couldn't solve. <laughs> and they were the people, you know, people not treating their passwords properly or people, you know, releasing data without authorization or things like that. So it became this common theme of human vulnerability. And that's kind of what I got really passionate about and started doing training of my own. And so Eventually, I realized that it's not scalable to teach people. And so I thought there's got to be a better way. And you would go look for a solution that might already exist. And you see, well, there's lots of training solutions, but do they actually work? And so you see a gap that says, you know what, they're really not teaching people the right stuff or it's not getting through to people. So then you actually have to say, how would you articulate the requirements of a solution that does these things? And there's the core requirements, which are, does it actually solve the main problem you have? But if you're looking at making a product, you know, there's a good chance it's going to have to interoperate with other products and have interfaces. So you've got to keep those in mind when you're doing the requirements. And so you build those things into it and you try and create a prototype that you can show to people and get feedback. And that takes a long time. I remember coding in JavaScript, <laughs> trying to just show some, create a web page that was simple and had some things you click on and something and you'd see something happen. And that was enough sometimes just to get feedback to say, oh yeah, that would be a really good thing to, to have if you can imagine what the rest of it will look like. And then the rubber hits the road. Then you're going to decide if you want to actually invest <laughs> in building something and taking that risk. And so you have to create a business case, you know, based on the feedback and the requirements you've got to say, yeah, I think I can sell this much. And sometimes you can fund it yourself, but you really likely are going to need to have uh, investors. And so having data from actual people who have looked at it and given their feedback 
uh, is absolutely essential um, in convincing other people that this is worth investing in. And so once you've got a product that you can show people, well, this is, whether it's security or not, then you've got to find the funding. Now, one of the things I found was really hard in the security product space is there aren't a lot of investors that really understand security that well. And I remember so many times saying something that I thought was just a good value-added piece of education for the investors, but it scared the heck out of them. And that was, well, it's really hard to get a return on investment from a security product, right? And they go, oh, really? Okay, well, maybe I won't invest then. <laughs> so, <laughs> oops, don't say that. <laughs> so that's kind of where the, the whole process leads. And, and once you get into you know, the funding zone, you can start investing in a team and, of course, creating the product and new, new versions of it and being wildly successful. Thanks, Scott. That was super interesting. And thank you as well to Dr. Shapiro for not only sharing about cyber predators, but also for sharing your experience and insights on putting together books with purpose. There, of course, is a link to the books mentioned in the episode in the show notes so that you can find them easily. But before you get to doing that, this has been Cybercrimology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research and its researchers. It's produced by me, but it's only really made possible by the kind guests who share their time and their research. You can find out more about the show at Cybercrimology, and you can talk to me at Cybercrimology on Twitter. 